Hi, and welcome to episode 106 of the podcast. Today we are so lucky to have Robin Jackowitz, who will be talking to us about a condition called persistent genital arousal disorder. Robin is a PhD candidate in clinical psychology at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, and her research focuses on this distressing but poorly understood condition. Her research, again, examines the prevalence and symptom expressions of PGAD, psychosocial predictors and consequences of PGAD, as well as barriers faced to assessing treatment. Not only that, Robin is also a student clinician in the Sleep Therapy Service and the Sex and Relationship Therapy Service at the Queen Psychology Clinic. She is a CIHR Vanier, an Ontario Women's Health Scholar, and her research has been recognized by awards and grants from a range of organizations, including the Journal of Sex and Maritable Therapy and the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health. We are so lucky to have Robin on today, and we can't wait to get started. Stay tuned. Welcome to Vino and Vaginas, the podcast. I'm your host, Kathy Dion, and I'm here to bring you interviews from the absolute best and brightest in their field, all about issues related to being a woman, from health and fitness to sex and dating and everything in between. My mission at Vino and Vaginas is to explore these topics, health, sexuality, and everything related to being a woman in a fun and safe environment free of shame, embarrassment, or stigma going to be an amazing time. Now, let's get to it. Well, thank you so much, Robin, for coming on the podcast today. My pleasure. So happy to be here. Yeah, I'm really so excited to chat more about this topic of persistent genital arousal disorder, something that is really not well known, both in the general public and in the medical professions. So I think that the work you do and us talking about it and getting out there is just so important. So thank you again for coming on. Now, you're finishing up your final year of your PhD at Queen's, right? I am. Yes. Amazing. So COVID has really thrown a wrench into that, I'm sure. (laughs) Um, But can you tell us a little bit about your research and what you guys do at the sex lab? Mm -hmm. Yes. As you mentioned, I'm a PhD candidate at Queen's University. I work with uh, Dr. Carolyn Pucall in the sexual health research lab, who I know you spoke with recently Mm. uh, about vulvodynia. Uh, And as you mentioned, the majority of my research focuses on uh, persistent genital arousal disorder, but I have a a kind of a broad interest in sexual health uh, as well. That's Hmm. really cool. And how, if you don't mind sharing, how did you get interested in this topic? Because I know it's not well known. Um, Yeah. Yes. Uh, So I've always had an interest in health. And I think as, you know, a, a young researcher before grad school, I started to notice that sexual health concerns were pretty common for, you know, amongst a number of different physical health and mental health concerns and very important to people, but paradoxically not well uh, understood or not talked about. And that uh, is what kind of led me to want to do more research in that area. I think that's amazing. And I mean, I never expected to be a pelvic health physiotherapist. (laughs) I never even truthfully wanted to be. Someone approached me early on in my career and said, you should do this. And I was just like, respectfully decline. But it's the same kind of thing with me. You started to realize how much we don't talk about it and what a disservice Mm -hmm. that is and kind of where we can really help people. So I'm so glad that I joined the pelvic health world. And I'm also so glad you did. So we're talking about persistent genital arousal disorder today, or PGAD as it's known by some. What exactly is this condition? Can you tell us a little bit about it? Mm -hmm. So PGAD is a condition characterized by persistent, unwanted genital arousal sensations that occur in the absence of uh, psychological desire or sexual desire. Uh, and when I say persistent, uh, I mean lasting hours to days or for some people continuously present. Uh, and these sensations are unwanted, uh, intrusive and distressing. Absolutely. And it's a relatively new diagnosis, right? I think what, like I think it was just in the 2000s, wasn't it, that it was de- yeah. defined first? The first paper to really try to 
characterized the condition actually only came out in 2001. Wow. Uh, a collection of different cases that a couple of clinicians had seen in their practice and they were looking for these sort of similar features across them. So it really hasn't been around for very long. And even when you say uh, diagnosis, uh, PGAD isn't recognized in most diagnostic manuals yet, probably largely because uh, we don't have a lot of research on it. Um, most recently, it was added to the uh, most recent version of the International Classification of Diseases, so ICD-11. Uh, but, but even in sort of that realm, yet not a lot of, of attention or inclusion of, of PGAD. Wow. And I mean, that's, that's, I mean, 20, I guess, 2001, that's 19 years, but that's really, it's really brand new. Like it's not, we, so we clearly don't know a ton about it, I'm assuming, given it's such a new kind of condition, if you will. Exactly. And we often talk about what a big gap there is between the time that research happens, and then we actually see a translation in clinical practice. I think they say on average about 17 years. So if we wow. think that PGAD's only been around uh, in the scientific literature for that long. Uh, I guess not surprising that, you know, there isn't as much knowledge as you say by the general mm -hmm. public or healthcare providers yet. Yeah, okay. so 20 years sounds like a long time, but it's not that long. It's not. And that's why what you're doing is so important. Now, okay, so it's a persistent arousal that's in the absence of desire, right? So it's mm -hmm. unwanted. How yeah. common is it? How common, like who gets this condition and how how common is it really? Yeah, that's a great question. There's a few uh, small prevalence studies, a couple at, that our team actually just did at Queens that give us sort of a, a rough idea of prevalence. But I mean, the common theme you'll hear throughout this is that we need more research uh, on, on most of these different topics. But across those studies, so these were studies in the UK, and uh, Italy, and then Canada and the US, we see a range of about one to 4% of people reporting PGAD, which I can may sound like small numbers, but when you look at one to 4% of Canadians, that's a pretty big chunk of the population mm -hmm. uh, as well. And some of those studies just looked at women and most of the research on PGAD thus far has, has primarily looked at women's experiences of the condition. Uh, but what we found in ours in the Canadian and US sample is that individuals of all sexes and genders can experience PGAD. There's actually a growing number of case studies uh, of men who report similar symptoms as well. Okay. And I know, like you said, there's not a ton of research on it, so we don't know really, but does it tend to be women or men of a younger age or is it later in life or is there really no rhyme or reason that we know of? It seems to kind of span the whole uh, uh, lifespan. So I think about 10% of uh, people in our studies report that their symptoms have always been present. Uh, about a quarter say it started at some point in like before the age of 18. So at some point in childhood or adolescence, which is, you know, we don't hear a lot from younger people who experience these can be a very difficult thing to, uh, to cope with. And then for those who had a period of time where they did not experience symptoms and develop them later in life, again, the range is broad. I think we, you know, had people of, of all ages up to in their 70s and 80s in some of our studies, but the average age is about mid to late 30s. So okay. it, it really is, you know, something that anyone uh, can experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. And what do most people describe their symptoms as? What does it feel like to them? So often describing it as unwanted arousal sensations and common words that people will use to describe uh, sensations primarily in the genital pelvic area. So not just the genitals themselves, but kind of it can be more distributed around the pelvic area. We use words like tingling, uh, sensations of throbbing or restlessness, feeling more sensitivity, uh, it can feel like there's sensations of swelling as well, though we don't have a great understanding of, of whether there are blood flow changes occurring or not, but that feeling of blood flow uh, can be there or feeling on the verge of orgasm, like it's about to happen, but, but not quite there. And do most people feel that urge to orgasm or is that just some people that feel that? It's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit mixed. I mean, part okay. of the condition um, as originally described in 2001, uh, was that 
the symptoms do not go away or do not fully resolve with orgasm as well. Some people may find uh, some temporary relief, like the symptoms will go away for a short period of time, but they tend to come back again quickly or may resolve uh, after a number of orgasms for a brief period of time. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's an, and do you find most people can identify that it is arousal or are some people more confused by all of those sensations you just said, but don't necessarily, because they don't have that actual desire, maybe can't identify it as arousal. Mm-hmm. Or choose to, to see it as something separate mm-hmm. from arousal, right? Because arousal, sexual arousal more broadly is, is a very complex experience. They're, the sensations are not just localized to the, to the genital pelvic area. We have changes throughout our body we have that psychological and emotional component. So some people actually differentiate and would, would say these sensations are happening, but they're not sexual arousal as I would experience in a wanted context. Absolutely. I mean, I know the patients I've treated. Yeah. Like I've had a mix, but most, I say most, but the ones I've worked with, some don't always identify it as arousal, but then when you talk about it like this, they're like, oh my God, you're right. That's so what, what I'm feeling. Right. And I think it's true what you said, cause you're not feeling that desire and you're kind of separating it. Right. And that's another piece too, that it, as sex researchers, we always talk about these physiological components of arousal and psychological components of arousal. And I don't think um, when we talk about arousal more generally, we always differentiate those. Uh, so sometimes, and uh, I can talk about this a little bit more as well, about yeah. uh, the confusion around uh, misdiagnosis of PGAD. Uh, but sometimes there is that confusion of the more psychological components or high desire pieces versus the physiological arousal pieces, both, both for one experiencing the sensations themselves, but also when presenting to healthcare providers, um, people often say that they are misdiagnosed as having something like hypersexuality disorder, which is, uh, you know, a higher drive for sexuality or engaging in more sexual behaviors, rather than a condition of unwanted sensory components. Absolutely, and and being misdiagnosed having hypersexuality, right? That's 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 huge, and it's got to be difficult for people because they don't want to feel these feelings. And yet they're then being told that they actually just have a high sex drive and there doesn't seem to be any help with that diagnosis that they're getting. Right. Not the right help. It's not not the the right right help. Yeah. Yeah, That's really tough. So you said it sometimes, but doesn't always end in orgasm Hmm. for people. Do they also experience pain? They can. Yeah. In our studies, we found about half of our sample would say the symptoms themselves are painful. The other half say they're not, but just because they're not painful doesn't mean they're wanted. They might still be describing them as unwanted or intrusive, unpleasant sensations. Um, There's a word dysesthesia that describes uh, unwanted sensations that are unpleasant, but not necessarily pain, like similar to uh, how people describe restless leg syndrome, which might capture that, that kind of experience. Um, But people also report a number of other comorbid pain conditions as well. So pain can be a a prominent component in PCAD, even though it's defining characteristic is those unwanted arousal sensations. Yeah. What are some common comorbidities that people experience Mm -hmm. or talk about? Mostly other forms of of chronic pelvic pain. Um, So interstitial cystitis, irritable bowel syndrome, uh, vulvodynia, some other, yeah, again, other sort of conditions of unpleasant sensations or painful sensations in the genital pelvic area. Restless leg is also a common uh, comorbidity as well. Interestingly, kind of seeing that link between the kinds of unwanted sensations. And are there any hypotheses out there as to why these are common comorbidities? Hmm. It's not an uncommon presentation, I think we see similar um, comorbidities for those other kinds of pelvic pain. Uh, So for example, vulvodynia, it's common for women to experience other forms of chronic pain or pelvic pain when they experience that as well. So it kind of fits within that cluster uh, of of symptoms or or conditions. Um, There are some theories, and I'm sure you probably talked to your your patients about things like central sensitization. Uh, so having 
a chronic pain condition and your nervous system starts to become kind of revved up or wound up and being more sensitive to other forms of pain. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. That is something we talk about in many, any pain, not even just genital, right? Any mm-hmm. kind of pain condition. And it's that hypersensitivity or that hyper arousal of our, of our nervous system. And so things that typically wouldn't be painful or wouldn't be um, stimulating a response does because our nervous system is so amped up and just ready at all, at all times. So it's definitely something we talk about and something that's at least in a physio kind of point of view, we often will work on kind of general desensitization of this nervous system, relaxation, kind of more global treatments than necessarily just focusing on whether it's shoulder pain or dyspareunia, painful sex or anything like that. So it's definitely some, something we touch on for a lot of people. <laughs> okay, so thank you for going through all those symptoms and kind of how people describe them because it's helpful. And I think a lot of women who might be suffering with these symptoms might not be able to articulate exactly what they're feeling. So it's helpful to hear someone kind of go through what common descriptions are. Is there any sort of trend on when this, these symptoms happen? Do they happen at random? Is there a pattern or any predictability to them? That's a great question. And a lot of the research that has been done so far is limited to being a single time point. Uh, So there's not been many studies that sort of follow women over time, uh, whether over months or over days to kind of see how things change. Uh, We do have one study uh, from our team at the moment that is is hoping to look at that. We're following women over a couple years to see um, how long their symptoms last, what things predict symptom changes over time. Uh, But people do describe a number of different triggers for their symptoms. So things they notice in their life that either increase their symptoms um, or bring on a flare of symptoms if they're someone who has periods where the symptoms are not present. Uh, And a lot of um, the most common ones tend to be things like stress or anxiety, um, as well as sometimes uh, things that have direct contact to the genital pelvic region, uh, like tight clothing. And then it's a little bit more mixed, but about 40 to 50% of people will say sexual stimuli or sexual activity will actually make their symptoms worse. So I know we talked earlier about for some people, uh, orgasm may uh, reduce symptoms for a period of time, but for other people, it might make their symptoms worse. So there is a lot of of range or um, heterogeneity uh, in terms of how these symptoms present people. Yeah. So no, knowing, I guess, that there's not just one way that PGAD presents. Mm-hmm. And you might not know the answer to this just because the research isn't there, as is the theme today. But do we know if over time symptoms tend to improve with time, get worse, or do they stay static? Or again, is it just different for everyone? It's hard to say. I've certainly heard from just in talking with people within the community or with uh, clients that people see improvements in their symptoms over time. I've heard from people who had symptoms and now no longer, which is is always wonderful to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't have good quantifiable data to, to answer the question, which is one of the goals of um, our ongoing longitudinal study. Which is amazing. And we'll make sure to give details of where people can join if they need to after. Um, And I think one of the things I find with PGAD and the difficult part about bringing awareness is there's this misconception out there with a lot of people that arousal equals pleasure. And I mean, I don't even, I don't know if you ever watched Grey's Anatomy, but I remember there was an episode of Grey's Anatomy and they had this woman come into the ER because she had gotten in a car accident because she had this episode And it turned out that it was, she was having spontaneous orgasms and was really stressed out about this. And it was kind of really putting a damper on her life, her day-to-day activities. But I found it hard because the whole episode went by with almost them poking fun at it a little bit and saying like, oh, that's such a lucky problem. Why would you want to fix that? Like, and yeah, like almost like it was such a good problem to have. And in a, in a way, I think this was a disservice a little bit to bringing Mm -hmm. awareness on this important topic. And so my question is, do you, my long-winded question is, have you come across these types of comments or these attitudes when you're talking about PGAD with anyone really? Yes, both personally when I'm, you know, talking to people I've met about my research, uh, but I hear it all the time uh, from 
often like research participants who say they've attempted to contact healthcare providers to receive treatment. And even from those providers, um, they say one of the most common barriers is people responding to uh, their symptoms in a way that they think you know, unwanted arousal could not be unpleasant or it shouldn't cause significant distress or impairment in your life. And sometimes even with, with humor saying, you're so lucky to have that, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. so certainly, yeah, yeah. That's really okay. tough because I can't, I can't, like, I can't imagine that it would make women want to talk about it more if they expect they're going to receive, or men, or if they're, they expect they're going to receive that comment, right? And I, I think it, yeah, it really limits. I think it's a big barrier for getting people the help that they need. Absolutely. And you're touching on maybe the next most common barrier we hear, which is feelings of shame or embarrassment. And as you're mm -hmm. describing, I don't think those happen in isolation that when they've approached healthcare providers and they've received these kind of reactions, it might make it harder to approach someone else yeah. uh, in the future. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I'm sure there's a degree of confusion that they're feeling too when you know, you want to talk about it, but you don't have the resources or people to necessarily discuss it with. Tough. Mm -hmm. um, but I do notice that in the media. And, and uh, I even I've seen some things on Instagram lately, not yours, like not, not good <laughs> research stuff, but just random kind of things talking about whether it's exercise induced orgasms or different things like that. And that's always the comments I see. It's, oh, I'd be so lucky to have that. But I don't think people realize how distressing this really truly can be for people. Absolutely. And it, we're all living within this larger framework that that does share that message that, you know, most sexual health research, even the diagnostic manuals that we use, really focus in on concerns or disorders related to decreased arousal. How can we increase it through uh, the medications like Viagra? There's really this focus on one end of the continuum uh, and very little attention at that other end, whether it be um, a lot of unwanted genital sensations or unwanted or high desire. So we really, that's the, the, the context for providers, but also the public. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. So the women that you've worked with, with PGAD, how often might they say they get these symptoms? Is it daily? Is it monthly? Or is it really, again, a total range? Hmm. Uh, about half of people in our research samples say that their symptoms are continuously present. So there's these sort of two different, um, two different groups, I guess, and that some people it's always there. It might fluctuate in intensity at different times. And then there are uh, another group who say they have periods of time where they're not experiencing symptoms. Uh, and for them, when they do, the most common duration is a few hours to a few days, but Again, it could be shorter or it could be longer wow. as well. And then the triggers, obviously. So the people who have it pretty consistently, do they then get increased sensation if a trigger is present or is it pretty much a comparable feeling the whole time? I don't know if we have yeah. research to answer so specifically. People do describe triggers. So, you know, my best guess would be that it, there's fluctuations in intensity, but... That is a good question. Absolutely. And you said for some people, but not everyone, that orgasms do help, though not for necessarily long time. Is there anything that people can do to relieve their symptoms or, or have they stated any things that tend to work for them? I mean, we're talking about things like stress and anxiety as triggers for symptoms, but what that can also mean is that strategies that promote relaxation, reduce stress, uh, can have the opposite effect as well. Uh, and some things, again, are a little bit mixed. So I think a lot of it is finding, you know, what works for you and your particular um, experience of the symptoms. For example, some people notice that uh, at night, similar to restless leg syndrome, their sensations start to increase and that, that might interfere with sleep. Whereas for an equal portion of people, nighttime and sleep uh, actually helps reduce symptoms. So yeah. part of it is kind of learning your body and your experience and what works for you. Definitely. And I mean, we're going to, I'm going to touch on treatment in a bit, but one thing that our listeners will 
kind of hear again and again is it really is different for each person. And when it comes to treating, sometimes what works for one person is not going to work for another. And we kind of do see a mixed bag of kind of what works for people and what doesn't. So I think that is definitely the kind of theme of today, if you will, is that it is more individualized than a lot of people might think. So there's general symptoms and kind of general characteristics that we know about PGAD that people can potentially identify with, but really and truly we have to find a good health practitioner that can help work with them to get them feeling better, right? Absolutely. Or a team of providers. A team. Absolutely a team. (laughs) Uh, So obviously you did mention that some women having an orgasm makes it better, whereas others, it maybe intensifies their symptoms. So what does that mean for a woman or a man who's experiencing PGAD in terms of their health life, uh, their sex life? Are they able to have a healthy sex life still? Are they able to still have pleasure and desirable arousal? Or do the symptoms create too much anxiety for that? Or is there physical reasons that they can't? Can you expand on that a little bit? Mm-hmm. Yet another area where you know we have some preliminary information, but it, it really um, uh, sort of a dedicated look at that in research will be so helpful. But ultimately, I think there are ways people can cultivate um, closeness or sexual pleasure in in their relationships. It's it is a little mixed in that, as, as I mentioned, some people do engage in sexual activity and find that can be helpful, whereas other people um, avoid sexual activity as much as possible uh, for fear of making their symptoms worse. So different people at the start might have different approaches. Uh, and one of the other sort of preliminary things that we found is that a lot of people don't disclose their symptoms to others, including their partners as well, which can be a challenge to navigating um, different sexual activities if you're trying to communicate, you know, what does feel good or doesn't feel good or what makes your symptoms worse uh, as well. So, you know, different strategies to promote communication can be really helpful. Um, spending some time reflecting on what, what arousal or when arousal is pleasant and wanted or has all those other components that we were talking about earlier, the emotional components, um, noticing arousal in other parts of your body. Uh, might be one way to help distinguish between when it's unwanted and unpleasant versus wanted and pleasant. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And what I know, I know we don't know exactly, but in your research, what do we know of the cause of PGAD or the causes? There's been a few different causes that have been hypothesized, and it might be that there isn't a single one cause, or for many people, it might be multifactorial. So a couple different things happening at once uh, that lead to it. Um, some some of those most more common hypotheses are uh, changes in medication. So a number of people notice the symptoms start, uh, in particular with antidepressant medications, either when they change their dosage, go on or go off the medications, they might notice the onset. That's the most commonly reported um, sort of initial trigger in our samples, uh, but, but most people aren't quite sure what coincided with the start of their symptoms. Uh, other research groups have looked at central or peripheral nervous system factors. So things like spinal pathology or cysts that are applying pressure to nerves uh, or small fiber sensory neuropathy, which is like similar to what people look at in things like restless leg syndrome as well. Uh, or blood flow factors, but uh, most of these studies are going to have been pretty small to date, mm-hmm. and, it, and it could be for many people a combination of some of these different things. Absolutely. I mean, we talked with Caroline about vulvodynia. It was really multifactorial, like you said, but mm-hmm. it was more a constellation of factors that we can't really necessarily tease out and know perhaps what the exact cause is, and I, th- mm-hmm. I feel it might be similar with PGAD, right? Yes. yes. Uh, especially in the, in the diagnosis phase too, often it's a matter of ruling out other potential things that could be causing the symptoms. Mm-hmm. So switching medications was one of the hypotheses. Mm-hmm. Now you mentioned antidepressants. Are there any other types of, an, of medication or did it tend to be mostly antidepressants? The, the 
definitely the most commonly reported is antidepressants. And then there's a range of others as well. There was a review that just came out and I won't be able to remember the exact specific medications off, off by heart. I wish that I could. That's okay. Um, but it is certainly not limited just to antidepressants. That just seems to be the, the most prevalent. The most common. Um, mm-hmm. And is it, you might not know the answer to this either. Sorry, I'm delving into this, but does it tend to be people who are, have been on these medications for a long period of time and then there's a switch or is it really, again, it could be someone who just started or, or just switched after a couple months. It seems like it could be either whether it's just starting for the first time or, you know, reducing your dosage or stopping after having used these medications for years without the symptoms. Mm -hmm. So fascinating, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And in terms of, like you mentioned, we have to, in the diagnosis phase, we really want to rule out anything else that's going on. So if we go through the due diligence to rule out different conditions, how is PGAD then diagnosed? I, I think it's very similar, as you were just saying, to to vulvodynia, and that we're looking for, I, I, and not us in particular as psychologists, this is why we work within teams, Um, but making sure there aren't other concerns present like dermatological concerns that could be contributing, infection, a mass, uh, and and often it's a matter of ruling out those other causes to arrive at PGAN. So is it then a diagnosis of exclusion rather than you have to check all of these boxes? At the moment, yes, and that may change as we, you know, get a better understanding of the physiological processes that are involved in in the condition. Definitely. Okay. And we talked briefly about how a major barrier, of course, is this lack of awareness on the condition. If someone feels like they might be experiencing PGAD or having these symptoms that you're talking about or having this unwanted arousal, what what can they what can they do? What can they do to get help if they don't necessarily know a healthcare provider that is knowledgeable in it? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, first acknowledging that these are difficult things to talk to uh, a healthcare provider about. Uh, we often recommend you know, doing some research and bringing those articles or brochures, infographics um, with you to your appointment uh, to share with your healthcare provider. Sometimes it's a matter of finding someone you feel comfortable communicating with. I know in Canada, we often start with our family doctor. So finding that, that walk-in clinic or family doctor um, who you work well with to help you then you know, um, undergo referrals to other sources as well. And support groups in particular can be a great resource here as well. Uh, some of the support groups that we work with, one of their, their roles is collecting names and locations of healthcare providers uh, across the globe who are knowledgeable about PGAD to help people in that process of finding someone uh, who's a good fit for them. So they can also be a great resource. So you can come with names and people that you're hoping to receive referrals to mm-hmm. and talk to your family doctor about them. That's amazing. And I know the women, for example, that I've worked with, it's I sometimes have been the first contact. And I think if anyone's experiencing these symptoms, if you're nervous to talk to your family physician, I mean, a public health physio is a great person to come to, not for any reason other than we have a lot more time and I I can spend a full hour and chat about a lot of things. And I know we don't always feel like we have that time when we're talking to our GP. So I think that's really great because then not only do we have the time and we'll kind of go through all of these questions, but we also will happily write a note to your physician and then talk to, you know, this, the sex therapist and work together in that team. And sometimes it can just be, have, it can be really nice for the patient to have someone there who can advocate for them. That is such a great point. I think psychology and pelvic floor physio can have a similar role in that we don't always necessarily need a referral uh, from a family doctor to get to us. And sometimes, exactly, that can be our part in supporting people is is connecting them to resources in the community, uh, helping them feel more comfortable talking about or advocating for themselves uh, as well. Yes. And communicating directly with other providers. Yeah. Or sometimes maybe not wanting to talk to patients don't want to talk to the opposite sex physician, right? Mm -hmm. And so, again, we can just 
start that conversation a little bit more easily. So, yeah. yeah. Great point. Mm-hmm. What other than healthcare professional knowledge or, or general populations knowledge on PGAD, what are some other barriers to treatment that you've seen? Those tend to be the most common. I mentioned misdiagnosis, but really finding knowledgeable healthcare providers, feeling comfortable talking to healthcare providers, uh, and having, I guess, both providers and the public acknowledge that arousal, something we see is usually pleasant, can be distressing, uh, is, is also a common barrier. So those are the, I'd say the big ones. Yeah. This, I guess, isn't a barrier so much to treatment, but there are barriers to sort of education and getting the message out there too. Uh, so as a research team, either advertising for our studies or uh, trying to bring the results of our studies to the public, we often encounter barriers as well. Uh, so for example, people feeling uncomfortable putting up messages about sexuality in open spaces uh, or having different social media platforms uh, mm-hmm. screen our information. And maybe you've encountered this as well. I'm not, I'm not sure, but words like genital or arousal sometimes uh, flag their the posts and they won't let us put them up. So we sometimes have to get creative with, with mm-hmm. our descriptions uh, as well. So, so sometimes barriers come up in unexpected places too. It's true. And I have come across that even just setting up the business page for the podcast. So Vina and Vaginas, I think it was, no, it was Facebook, not, I think it was Facebook. And I I couldn't actually call the page. They couldn't, I couldn't have the word vagina in it. Mm -hmm. And even when starting the podcast itself, it initially got declined from Apple and it got declined because I didn't check the box that said explicit content, because obviously if you're talking about vaginas, I'm going to be swearing <laughs> and talking explicitly. Right. So I actually had to resubmit it and I have to click the little checkbox. So now if you go on the podcast, it'll say that there's explicit content, but the truth is we're just talking about health and women's health. And, and so I thought that was really shocking. I shouldn't be shocked by this anymore because we come across this stuff all the time, but I also think it's 2020. And I thought we had got a little bit past that, at least in the terms of saying the word vagina. Right. But agreed. It may be a podcast topic all in itself, but really fascinating that. Yeah, I know. Challenges this Uh, this makes for awareness and education and yeah, absolutely. Um, Okay. So this, again, I'm not sure if you know the answer to this. I just am very curious when we're talking about endometriosis. So a totally different condition. The research says that it takes on average seven years for women to get a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And I know PGAD isn't a diagnosis yet. We don't have that. And it probably is so new that we don't know this, but with the misdiagnoses, do you see that we do like people are going to multiple healthcare professionals and it's just like the time is adding up before they can get some answers. Do you see that? Mm -hmm. Yes. So we have one study that the one I keep referring to in terms of barriers uh, to healthcare, where we asked about a whole bunch of parts and pieces of people's experience accessing healthcare. It's not uh, accepted for publication yet so stay tuned but, so but absolutely yes so we see a long wait time in terms of first approaching a healthcare provider uh, I wish that uh, my memory would allow me to, to pull up that exact number but um, oh gosh I want to say approaching about half of people waiting you know a very long time or not at all approaching a healthcare provider uh, and then those who do typically see a, a large number of providers, very similar to, um, we often use vulvodynia as our model in PGAD, but very similar to endometriosis and vulvodynia. So seeing, mm-hmm. you know, five, six or more providers. Mm-hmm. I think, I mean, that's a common theme for all of these disorders, basically women's health, pelvic health disorders, is we just, we can't get to the diagnosis quick enough and it tends to be a lot because of lack of awareness. So that's why I love we're doing this stuff to change that and hopefully open up the dialogue and, and, and increase awareness of all of these dysfunctions. Mm-hmm. Now I was reading one of your studies and you talk a lot about the fear avoidance model when it comes to persistent genital arousal dysfunction. So I was hoping you could tell our listeners a little bit about what this is and how it relates to PGAD. So the fear avoidance model is something, again, that we borrowed from the chronic pain 
literature. Uh, and it helps to understand how you know, we can intervene in terms of our thoughts and behaviors in order to reduce some of that distress and discomfort associated with symptoms or, or alternatively how those thoughts and behaviors can maintain the symptoms. Uh, so it, it has these two different paths to it. One side of the model is a bit of a cycle. So you know, it starts with someone maybe for one of those various different reasons we talked about first developing uh, pain or arousal symptoms in the case of PGAD. And the path where we have the cycle that maintains, one might start to have thoughts that are uh, catastrophizing or worrying a lot about that worst case scenario. Maybe these sensations will last forever. There's nothing I can do about them, which understandably leads to a lot of feelings of, of fear or hopelessness, maybe avoiding activities that might make the sensations worse. Uh, and then that can in turn lead to, you know, difficulty engaging in the activities that are important to you, maybe making you feel more anxious. And anxiety shares a lot of those same responses and feelings with arousal. So kind of maintaining that, that cycle. Alternatively, thinking of ways to uh, notice and challenge catastrophizing thoughts, uh, strategies to engage in activities or reduce fear might then alternatively reduce symptoms or the distress associated with the symptoms, and most importantly, help people kind of engage in their life and the things that are important to them. So it kind of gives us this framework uh, for different places that you know, healthcare providers can intervene or individuals mm -hmm. can, can adopt strategies to help them cope. Absolutely. And I think just knowing about that cycle is really helpful for people because we do, we talk about something similar in chronic pain or in, in pain experiences all the time. And it's that once something happens and we expect pain or in the instance of PGAD, we expect that arousal will happen, that unwanted arousal will happen. Then we get, it's almost that fight or flight response, right? So we get anxious, we get nervous. And then that can sometimes, at least in pain, perpetuate the symptoms and it can just further that cycle. So being able to break that in some way can really be helpful. And it's a lot that we talk about in pain is, I mean, we're not consciously making these decisions. We don't choose to get anxious or our heart rate go up or tense our muscles or anything. That's something we are consciously doing. But if we can be cognizant of it and be aware of it in the moment, so then you, like you said, you can employ those relaxation techniques or, or whatever, then we can hopefully start to break the cycle. And then our brain more than anything won't expect those symptoms all of the time, hopefully. Mm -hmm. Ah, Yep. It's very common. And I mean, we talked about it for vulvodynia as well, right? They share so many similarities, even though the sensations are different. A lot of the experiences are similar, mm -hmm. which makes it a great resource too. We keep saying there, you know, there's not a lot of evidence for, for which different treatments are going to be most effective for PGAD, but we're not starting from scratch. We can look to the vulvodynia research mm -hmm. for, for ideas as well. Absolutely. Now for the women listening, or I keep saying women, but for the men or women who are listening who might be experiencing PGAD or think they have these symptoms, like we've talked about, we don't know everything, but we know some things. Mm -hmm. We know a little bit and we know that there are things out there that can help. So what do we do or what do these individuals do? How do we treat PGAD? Mm -hmm. Definitely our, our team always advocates for a multidisciplinary approach where possible. So connecting first with that, um, that great family doctor who you have really great communication with, or maybe your pelvic floor PT or psychologist, uh, and then building out from there. So, you know, referrals to different medical providers like gynecologists or urologists, uh, pain specialists, as well can be helpful. Neurologists would be, you know, the teams that could talk more about the central and peripheral nervous system factors there. Um, of course, pelvic floor physiotherapy, and I'd love maybe to hear a bit from you about your approaches to, to PGAD, but we know it's effective for other forms of genital pelvic discomfort. So we always recommend uh, that someone with PGAD connect to pelvic floor physio in their area as well. And then, you know, psychology can help with both 
the mental health consequences of PGAD. It can take such a toll on people's well-being um, through the different ways that it interferes with their day-to-day -day functioning. And then also, like we were talking about with the fear avoidance models, ways to develop different coping strategies to break those cycles as well. So kind of taking a broad range of approaches, yeah. building off of what we know is effective for other kinds of, of pelvic pain. Absolutely. And in terms of pelvic floor physio, absolutely it works best in conjunction with those multidisciplinary teams. So we know we have the medical piece taken care of and working with your team or a great psychologist who can, can kind of go through those coping strategies and, and manage expectations of, of symptoms and pain. And, but for physio, it really is a solid assessment and we're looking at so much. And I know a lot of women listening to this might think, okay, it's just about my genitals, but the truth is we look at things from the back to the rest of the pelvis, to the hips, mm. to really how you're moving because it's a lot more complex. And for some people, like you said, it might be neurological. It might be something happening in the, in the spinal region, right? Whereas it might be more nerve for someone and, so we really, for physio, we'll go through a really thorough, I say really a lot of times because it's true, but a very thorough assessment that may last, you know, multiple visits because we just mm -hmm. want to look at everything. And then once we have that look at a, at a patient or a client, we can then start to treat from there. And that treatment may look very different for different people experiencing the same symptoms, which I know can sometimes be challenging for people because they want, you know, this is what's going to help. But the truth is we need to see how your body's moving, see how your body's responding to different stimulus or, or events, and then go from there. So for some people, I do a lot of external treatment, whereas for other people, it might be more internal. It might be a combination. It'll depend on both the patient comfort and our assessment findings and go from there. But we do find consistency with treatment is really important. So often the more frequent, and I don't mean all of the time, of course, but the more frequent and regular we can see people, then that really helps. And then we'll know what's working and what's not. Sometimes it is a, a sometimes you really do have to try something and then see how it's progressing. And if it doesn't help and it's not working, then we kind of change tactics and, and look at something else, but there's so much we can look at. And so, and I obviously do speak to that uh, fear avoidance and brain connection too. So mm -hmm. It's not a, again, I'm long-winded today, Robin, but basically there's a lot we can look at and a lot we can treat and it'll depend on the person. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that helps with hopefulness too. There's a lot of different strategies to try. Uh, and that's, you know, we learn even from trying some strategies, finding out that they don't work and shifting to other ones. It's still a great way to learn about what does and doesn't work for you. Might Absolutely. And I think it's really make. empowering to our clients as well or our patients because they can then learn what does work for them and some things may work better than others and it just gives them those tools right mm -hmm. and to know that it's not this pill and that's all and if it doesn't help there's no other option for you so it is it gives hope yeah yeah and obviously this is a really distressing condition and it can disrupt someone's life in a very large way, right? Especially mm -hmm. if maybe people have to avoid wearing tight pants or avoid going on the bus or bicycle because of fear of either fear of symptoms or actual symptoms. Yes. What in your work, what do you kind of counsel women or men on how can they continue to live a pretty normal life and kind of what's the main focus that you talk about when we're talking about day-to-day -day life? Hmm. I, I think like you're saying, it, it's, it is very individualized. Like I'm very interested in learning about, you know, what's important to each person that comes into the, into the office, what their goals are, why those goals are so valuable to them so that we can then create a plan to give them tools to work with the symptoms when they come up, whether that's relaxation strategies or strategies for working with some of those thoughts or emotions that come up while we build a plan to work gradually towards that goal. Uh, so that might be engaging in some of the behaviors that they'd like to, whether it's riding the bus, the bike, uh, sometimes even just sitting for prolonged periods of time can be difficult. So helping them kind of 
work up to those goals or increase their activity over time while pulling from that strong foundation of, of coping skills or strategies to help deal with both the distress and the symptoms themselves. But what that might look like for each person really depend on, on what it is they wanna do. Maybe they're um, you know, working towards traveling to a certain place, being able to work comfortably from home now, or maybe they're focused on their relationship and building intimacy with their partner. So it can look so different. And I think that's such a good point. And I think that's why it's so important that people who are experiencing this do speak to someone like yourself or someone that can help them through this because they might not know at the beginning what goals they have until they talk about it. Right. Or, and I, and I think people's goals might be so different for someone. It might be to engage in penetrative sex, whereas without fear, whereas for another person, it might just be I want to be able to go for a bike ride with my kids, right? And so being able to actually identify what those goals are, I think makes it a little bit easier to work towards them as well, instead of just being, I don't know what to do, and that's it. Yeah, then we can measure our progress too. We can see, you know, what's helped us get closer towards the goal over time. Mm -hmm. So what can a sex therapist and a psychologist do to help? I mean, obviously all of this stuff, talking about goals, working through strategies, what other types of things or, or kind of focus will you have working with clients? I think we've touched on a few of them already. So different strategies, you know, along those different points, for example, of the fear avoidance model. So, you know, we can work with different unhelpful thinking strategies like catastrophizing, uh, which is connected so much to those, those fear emotions. So for example, someone might think, you know, these PGAD symptoms will never go away. And we help them to kind of look for evidence to challenge those thoughts. Uh, for example, you know, maybe thinking about the steps that they are taking to find help for their symptoms or the tools that they do have that work to help them reduce symptoms or that they can live a fulfilling life or they're making progress towards their goals, even if those symptoms don't fully go away. So giving them uh, that little bit of confidence and information to challenge those, those thoughts as they come up. Uh, hypervigilance can be a big part of both pain and unwanted arousal too. So you know, really focusing in on the symptoms, checking all the time to see, you know, are they changing? What's making them worse? So different strategies to help kind of broaden that focus too, right? Like mindfulness is a great tool here to help approach uh, bodily sensations in a non-judgmental present moment way, but also helps expand to noticing other parts of your body, noticing your surroundings. Uh, so you're not as focused just on that one part of your body. Um, it could be broader techniques working with anxiety. We've talked a lot about relaxation. Mm -hmm. That's very important. Um, the symptoms themselves can, you know, can, we've talked about the impact on day-to-day -day functioning, but they can also have a big impact on mood as well. Uh, one piece of um, sort of education that I, I always try to mention when I'm talking to different healthcare providers is that we see a, a strong association with low mood or suicidal ideation. Mm -hmm. So making sure, you know, if you are a provider who sees people with PGAD, checking in on that and making sure people are safe and have strategies. So sometimes it's working with mood as well, uh, or building a safety plan to keep people safe too. And then again, ultimately, always coming back to those goals, making sure people are, are moving towards the things mm -hmm. that are important to them. Mm -hmm. I think that's amazing. And I love your comment on hypervigilance because it's true and focusing on the goals instead of always your symptoms can be challenging transition, but I think it's an important one that we see in all sorts of conditions, right? But, but I think it's an important one and why I really encourage anyone with these symptoms to talk to someone and work with a psychologist and sex therapist because it really can help with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Obviously, we know a lot of information, but like you said, there's a lot we need more research on. <laughs> Do you have any resources you can direct anyone to who might be experiencing PGAD? Not all people listening to this podcast will be local. So are there any kind of, you know, bigger resources they can find online or anything that you know of? Mm -hmm. So in terms of Kingston locally, we try to keep on top of different resources here that we can direct people to for PGAD, but also for a wide range of relationship, 
sexual health concerns. Uh, and you can always find those on our webpage, which is sexlab.ca. We also have an information page there specific to PGAD. So it gives a really general overview about what PGAD is. What are some uh, general treatment approaches? Um, what do you mean arousal isn't always pleasurable? Some sort of information and education about PGAD. Uh, it also includes recent publications from our lab. I've mentioned sometimes it can be helpful to print those off and bring them to your healthcare provider um, to start a conversation. And you can always ask us for those or you can find them listed on our page there. But for resources more, more broadly outside of Kingston, uh, I always think the support group is a great way to go. So on that same page, we have a link to a private uh, support group. And these are run by patient advocates who you know, we're connected with through research. And one of the things that they really champion uh, in addition to, to supporting people who have questions about PGAD is creating a resource of healthcare providers across the world who have seen people with PGAD are knowledgeable about PGAD as a way to, as a first starting point to find certain like people in your community who might be a good uh, resource for you. So connecting with them and, you know, getting a list of people in your area can be a great start. That's awesome. And I know we're all looking forward to your study that's soon to be published <laughs> that you kept talking about. Now, before I ask my final, I have one last question for you, Robin. Yes. Yes. And my, my penultimate question then is where can people find out more information about you and your work? So you mentioned sexlab.ca. I think you guys are on Instagram too. Is there anywhere else people can find you? We are our website. And then we're across a couple different social media platforms. And one of the things you will see there is our ongoing hashtag PGADFACTS uh, social media campaign where we post uh, a little scientifically or empirically based fact about PGAD every Wednesday to try and build more awareness. That's uh, amazing. So, but on our webpage, you know, we have our PGAD info page, we have our research, and we also have a page about all of our ongoing studies too. So if you're interested in either following our research and finding out some of the, the new results or contributing to research as a participant, uh, we have a broad range of studies there listed, a number to do with PGAD specifically, and then a whole bunch a different way. We have a, have a broad range of interests in our lab. Absolutely. I love it. And if someone is wanting more information on PGAD, they could just obviously search that hashtag PGAD facts. That's amazing. And you are accepting people for research online, correct? Yes, we do. Our, we have some in-lab studies running at the moment um, that will be kind of relaunching soon in the Kingston area. Uh, and then most of our research is online at the moment. So uh, you know, I mentioned a longitudinal study. That study actually just uh, finished its first wave of recruitment. So for that one, um, we'll have to hold on to see what the results are. But we have other studies uh, launching at the moment too. So we're looking for right now feedback on our hashtag PGADFACTS campaign. If you've seen it, if you haven't seen it, we'd love to hear from you. Everyone is welcome to participate in that. Uh, we'll soon be launching a study for individuals who experience PGAD symptoms and or hypersexuality symptoms. Uh, Cause we're looking to develop a measure to kind of better understand the similarities and differences between those conditions to create a tool so that it's less often that individuals are misdiagnosed with one or the other. We're trying to make a, a short tool that a healthcare provider could use in their office to do a quick screening. Uh, so that will be launching very soon uh, if anyone is interested in participating in that. Awesome. Awesome. I love it. We'll try to make sure to tag it once it gets launched so everybody can hopefully join if they're interested. Amazing. And my final question for you is if you were talking, or I guess you are talking to someone who may be experiencing symptoms of a PGAD, what are the top three pieces of advice, advice or homework potentially that you would tell this person? Mm -hmm. I think the very first thing I would want to say is to know that you're not alone, that this is a condition that it can feel like there's not a lot of information out there and people aren't talking about it, but you know, we know it affects, you know, one to 4% of people that, that it's a, a large number and that, you know, you're not alone in experiencing this. Um, second, I'd, I'd say connecting with healthcare providers, bringing those resources 
with you. And if you're not sure where to start, reaching out to maybe a, a pelvic floor physiotherapist, a psychologist, or a support group to get some ideas. And practicing self-care, that the theme of working with stress and anxiety has come up a lot in our chat today. And you know, the mind and body are very linked. So looking for ways to promote relaxation, self-care, and or reaching out to services for additional support in that, you know, by approaching a mental health provider that by no means uh, suggests that this, these feelings that you're having are all in your head and that, you know, mental health supports can provide uh, different coping strategies and ways to work with a number of different healthcare, uh, physical health concerns like pain and cancer. Uh, so, you know, having to, so putting some of those in place can be helpful, whether it's on your own or with the support of others. Mm -hmm. I think that's super helpful. And I know this information will be so beneficial to so many people who just maybe needed to hear that and hear that they aren't alone and understand that there is help out there and that these symptoms aren't in their head. And mm -hmm. I think that's amazing. So I thank you so, so much for coming on the podcast today and chatting about this. Thank you for having me. And thanks for bringing you know, more attention to this. Mm -hmm. we'll, we'll keep talking about it as often as we can. <laughs> thanks so much, Robin. Thank you.